pray, and we're going to dive right in, and uh, we'll look forward to what the Lord has for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that again this morning we come before a living Lord, and that again we do not need to uh, sing you into this place or pray you into this room. We can simply say thank you. Thank you, because you promised from the beginning that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Where two or three are gathered, you are here. And so we thank you for your presence. We thank you again that this is the only book we'll ever read where the author is present every time we read it. And it's with that confidence alone we open it this morning, mindful that it is your spirit that speaks to our hearts. And that you are a God who does not play hide and seek. You long to be known. And you long to know us. And so I pray this morning that as we put your word before you, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would allow us to hear what you have, and again, be encouraged that today you long not only to know us, but that we might know you, and that daily, moment by moment, we might be found walking in you, abiding in all things. And so again, we thank you that you are here, and that we trust your spirit, and your spirit alone will put these things upon our hearts that you long for us to know. Thank you for all of this. We put it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, before we get to 1 Corinthians, I just want to set the stage to talk about a church who's greatly divided. A church that had not been on common ground, but I want you to note that in the book of Acts at Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, God's Spirit, remember the veil was torn, and God's Spirit, which was once found in a temple or in a tent, was now going to be poured out on all mankind. And when it was, there was no instruction manual handed down with the Spirit. Uh, when this comes upon you, this is what you should do. No, the Spirit was poured out, and immediately, what do we read? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Listen to this. It says in Acts 2, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind, in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What a great word. The Spirit was poured out, and the automatic ramification there was unity, there was giving, there was sharing, there was fellowship. If you read on in Acts chapter 4, and I won't read it for time's sake, it says they were going out with one heart and soul, and no one was considering anything that was theirs, their own. Why? They were selling, they were giving, and helping as anyone had need. Isn't that awesome? The Spirit comes out, and immediately, what do we see? Selflessness, unity, giving, love, care, community. I love it. Unfortunately, and you love when there's that turn, 
Unfortunately, as we read on, the Corinthian church is only a, a short time later. And as we begin to read about a church that the same spirit has been poured out on, the same Lord, the same spirit, and yet, by 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, do you know what Paul says? He says this, I exhort you, brethren, he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be, there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. The Spirit's been poured out, the same Spirit that led to such unity and community, giving, sacrifice, and love. And now, Paul's writing that same church, and here they are, what does he say? Divisions among you and quarrels. And you know what we find out as we read on in the next few chapters? Perhaps this is a review. I hope so. But listen, read on chapter 2 and 4. Listen. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They've begun to divide themselves by which preacher, speaker, school, or denomination they thought was better or more spiritual. Read on, chapter 5. Immorality in the church, in fact, incest. Someone sleeping with his stepmother, and it's going unaddressed and unchecked. Chapter 6. People are suing each other. Chapter 7. Wives are withholding their bodies from their husbands, and husbands withholding their bodies from their wives, using their body as a weapon, instead of that which is given for love. In chapter 8, they're eating meat sacrificed to idols. Not that it was wrong, Paul says, but they were defiling the consciences of those of weaker faith. Chapter 9, Paul says, listen, we're living in a world where people are using their rights and freedoms, not for the bettering of the body, but for the condemning. And Paul says in chapter 9, I would rather lay down my rights for the sake of the gospel than make my boast an empty one. I'll listen to who I want, I'll sue who I want, I'll take what I want, uh, I'll marry who I want. I'll eat whatever I want. It, all of a sudden you realize it had become less about Christ and more about what? Me. That's what happens when I replace Christ at the center of the gospel message. When church becomes about my needs, what I want, how I feel, or need to be fulfilled. And isn't that the day and age we live in? The church brings up a doctrinal issue you disagree with. Today, you can walk down the street and find any church that will agree with what you want to agree with. Oh, you don't like what I'm doing with my personal life? They do, and they believe in Jesus too. Oh, I don't go to that church. Why? Well, I went there, and the speaking was great, but I didn't get a sense that I could really worship I found the church, and the speaking's not so great, but man, can I worship. Why do you go there? Oh, well, the worship's not good, 
But boy, 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 does the preacher have it. <laughs> Isn't it funny? We've learned to pick and choose our place of worship based on what? What we get. And not what we're called to give. And it's so easy to do. This may play into where we're going this morning, but I have a friend who's a pastor at a very large church in Ontario, and I love what he does. In fact, so often he meets people who are one of those who have very good eyesight. And when I say that, they know something good when they see it, but they also know something not so good when they see it. And the number of times, think a church of a thousand, and he'll have a, a parent come, and they come up to him and say, listen, pastor, I want to tell you something. Your youth group stinks. My kids aren't happy. The games aren't fun. The speaking's not engaging. And if you can't turn things around, I don't know if they're going to come anymore. In fact, I think there's another youth group around the road. They're better. You know, you know what he does? And I love his response. He turns to them, and this is what he says. Oh, wow. It's obvious the Lord has given you a passion for youth. And look just how good you are at seeing what youth need. You know what? We've been looking for leaders for the youth group. And you obviously have a vision for youth. Come on Wednesday night. We're going to have a, a youth leadership meeting. It'd be great to have you there. You know what the response is every time? Uh, no, 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 no. I wasn't asking to be a part of the youth leadership. Here's what I wanted. What? You to fix your program for my youth. Isn't that it? We've become so good at judging how things are and how things aren't and how things should be. But do I want to get involved? No. No, not at all. And you know what? That's what's interesting about the book of 1 Corinthians is that Paul calls out all this, not selfless, but selfish behavior that's going on outside the church in the midst of the body of God. And then when you get on and into chapter 11, do you know what happens? He turns to what's happening inside the church and what's going on in their meeting. But you know what? I want to pause for a second. Because before we get there, I want you to note something important here. And that is how this church divided, selfish, tearing down, not building up. Do you know how Paul addresses them as he begins? Listen, I want to turn for, for uh, a moment's sake and, and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What do you think about a church that's got sexual immorality, unaddressed, lawsuits between members, uh, right? All this stuff is going on. How would you open a letter to that church? Do you know how Paul opens his letter? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you know what's interesting about that? That as Paul begins to write this letter, do you know what he does? He doesn't come out guns blazing, which I might feel inclined to. No, do you know what he does? He stops and he opens this letter reminding this church about their position in Jesus. Because what he's going to do is contrast that with their condition in this world. Does that make sense? What's their position in Jesus? The moment you welcome him into your life and you ask him to be the Lord of all things, here's what he says to the church at Corinth, sanctified in Jesus, saints by calling. What does that mean? Sanctified, set apart for a purpose. What does the word saint mean? Holy. Holy. He goes on and says this. People who have the grace of God which was given you, they're grace-filled. He then says this, that in everything you were enriched in him. What does that word enriched mean? I love that word. Why? Because it's very near to my heart. If my wife and I were going to go to the bread aisle in the grocery store, which is something that I'm usually fired from, and I'll explain why, if she were to pick a loaf of bread, it would be brown, heavy, full of seeds, and I know that the moment I cut into it, even if I put swaths of butter on it, it's going to taste too healthy, like I just licked dirt. So, when I pick a loaf of bread in the aisle, I go to the white, fluffy, and yes, it might even say the word wonder on it. What's so wonderful about it? I'll tell you what, nothing, because it's so full of sugar, there's nothing redeeming about it whatsoever. And yet, guess what it says on the bag? Enriched with vitamins D. And that's when I'm pleading my case for the Wonder Bread. Look, I'm as healthy, right? Why? That word enriched means adding something that intrinsically isn't there before. What are they trying to do? They're enriching. They're adding vitamins B and C and D. And whatever you add to it, there's nothing to actually make it better. But they try. Adding what wasn't inherently there before. It's been enriched. What does he say? You've been enriched in everything, in him. He's given you everything you lacked. Even the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Confirmed in Christ. Blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus. Does that sound like a church? Divided? Incest? Lawsuits? You see, Paul wanted to remind them, first and foremost, of their, their position in Christ. This is who you are in him. When God looks at you, what does he see? Forgiven, a child of God, 
loved. That's your position. Secure. And yet, what's happened? The condition of this church has ceased to reflect their position in Christ. A God who's selfless, who went even to the cross. And yet, what have they become? Their condition? So utterly selfish. That there's no sign of Christ in the way they're living at all. And so much so that not only what's happening outside the church, as he turns inside the church, they've taken their newfound freedom, and in chapter 11, it tells us that they've taken symbols that had to do with, with a heart of submission, and they've put on a heart of arrogance and become contentious. They've also taken the Lord's Supper. Is there any celebration that speaks of something so selfless as when the Lord took the bread, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. We call ourselves the body of Christ. And yet, they took this symbol, and what does it tell us? 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll read in verse 17. He says, but giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, and another is drunk. What? I love the fact, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 22, I love the fact that when the translators translated this from the original language, the only thing they could come up with best is the word what with an exclamation mark after. What? Really? You're taking the Lord's Supper, celebrating his death on your behalf. And one is left hungry while another is drunk. That's like bringing out the communion tray. And again, we're so divided today. When we talk about baptism, it's do you sprinkle, dunk, pour, spray, splash, or spit? We fight over how you do it, right? And when the bread comes out, it's is it wonder bread, healthy bread, gluten-free bread, cracker bread? I don't know, right? But listen, that's like bringing out the communion table and having someone shoot down all the cups right in front of you and Cookie Monster bowing down on the, on the, on the, on the cracker tray. How could you take the body of the Lord who is so selfless, so selfish? But that's what we do. We come to the Lord Jesus and slowly there's a turn. And fundamentally, I wouldn't be able to tell you where and when it happens. Slowly, it becomes less about him and what he has and more about me and what I need. You see, it's from there that as we read on, Paul turns again what's happening in their meetings. Do you know what this church has done? And we're finally, after all of that, getting to what the Lord has been speaking to this week. Sorry, that was the longest intro of all time. <laughs> this church that is sanctified, set apart, saints, grace-filled, 
enriched in all things. By the time we get on into chapter 12, he begins to speak about the gifts that God has given the church. And do you know what they've done? They've taken certain gifts, the ones that are outward, the ones that are more visible, like the speaking in, of tongues, of holy language, and they've begun to elevate the things that were outward and observable in the meeting and make them greater than the other gifts that are less likely to be seen. And Paul says this, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretations of tongues. But one of the same Spirit works all things, distributing each one individually just as he wills. Why? For we are, even as the body is one, yet as many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. I want you to note something this morning. It says, he gives and distributes amongst the body as he desires all of them given a manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. Is it for your good? No, the common good. He doesn't say he gives you the gift you want, though I wish he did. He gives you the gifts he wants. There's many gifts I wish I had. I wish I could lead worship. I think I've told you that before. I wish. There's nothing more exciting to me than if I could stand up before a body of people and truly worship and lead people in the worship of the Lord Jesus. And yet the Lord has given me a strumming deficiency, and no matter how much I feel I worship, at some point in time, I will go out of tune and off pace, and everything will fall apart. I wish I had the gift. I don't. And, and sometimes there's gifts I long for, I don't have them. And yet there are gifts that God has given. But there's a reason he gave them, and notice what it is. He gives them for the common good. Not your platform, not your praise, but his. If you're ever to ask me who the greatest worship leaders are, it's not the one who plays their instrument the best, sings the best. Here's the greatest worship leader. The one who, when they lead, seem to fade into the background like they're not even there. Why? Because it's not their performance. It's their ability to lead you before the audience of one. The one you're supposed to be singing to. Does that make sense? So often I get caught up in the performance or my perfection. No. It's leading the heart. I laugh. We have this incredibly gifted couple who lead our music at Gabriel the Fellowship, and they had to step aside as they had his child. 
And we had these wonderful three senior women step in last minute to cover. And I'm just going to tell you straight up, their first outing together, there was no practicing. It was not on time. It was not in tune. It was... It, it was hard to find something redeemable about it. <laughs> and yet, in the middle of it, I had to laugh. And it's bad when your pastor's laughing in the front row as the worship's going on. But there was another woman, uh, another senior woman, who was in our congregation. And at one point, with this wonderful desperation in her voice, she said, Come, Lord Jesus, quickly! <laughs> and I, to be honest, what made me giggle was I wasn't sure if it was because of the attitude music or she was in a place of worship and was just excited for the Lord's return. And I'm going to be honest, I know that woman well. She was with the Lord and excited for the Lord's return. It was not a comment on the music, though it made me laugh. It did. I'm going to be honest with you. They may fire me later, forgive me, but I did. But listen, he goes on and says, you know, if we were all an eye, where would hearing be? If we were all a foot, where would we, how would we walk? It's not about the gift you want, but God has given these gifts. And I want you to hear this in 1 Corinthians 14. Look, we've already made it to chapter 14, guys. There's only 16 chapters. We're almost there. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Chapter 14, verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. I want you to see that word keeps coming back again and again. Listen, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but the one who speaks in tongues, a heavenly language, what? Doesn't edify the body, but edifies who? Themselves. And if you're going to ask me what the greater gift is, no matter how spiritual, no matter how outstanding or heavenly it may seem, there's one gift that is greatest of all, and here's the gift. The one that edifies. What does it mean to edify? What does it mean to edify? To build up, to benefit, to instruct, to improve, to nurture, to enlighten, to uplift, to elevate. <laughs> Listen, these gifts were given for the common good, and the greatest of these gifts, the greatest, is the one that edifies, builds up, pours in, encourages. Pray for the gifts, but pray more than anything. And here it uses by example that word prophesy. Be careful. I always thought that word prophecy meant future telling or fortune telling. No. Do you know what prophecy means? It's not foretelling. It's forth telling. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 10. It says, as to the salvation, the prophets prophesied of the grace 
that would come to you be made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They were simply communicating what Christ in their heart was indicating. The Amplified Bible puts it this way. When you see that word uh, prophecy, it says interprets the divine will and purpose in inspired preaching and teaching. That's it. Prophecy. To speak the will and the way of the Lord. Sometimes it may involve telling of what may come. But for the most part, it's going to be about the proclaiming of the testimony of Jesus, his will and his way. I would rather, Paul's going to go on to say, I would rather speak five words in, 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 a, in a relatable voice than 10,000 words in tongues. Why? Because I would rather have the gift that edifies, builds up, encourages, relates the testimony of Jesus in a way you can understand than speak 10,000 words in a heavenly language that nobody knows. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. He says, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind. I will sing with the spirit, I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say, Amen? If you're giving thanks, since he does not know what you're saying, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, listen to this. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a song, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for, what's the word? Edification. Or in your translation, it might say, building up, encouraging. Here's the question. Today, and I can't speak for you, I can only speak for me, and God is shining a light on these things because it's what I need to hear. Have you fallen into that place where church has become more about being edified than edifying? those around you? Has it become more about a place where you come to get than what you can give? Wouldn't it dramatically change our body if when we came to this place, it had everything to do with how I can give, not what I'll receive? How can I bless? Not how much will I be see, when Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples, it was not by the greatness of the gifts, not by the heavenly tongues, nor by the, all these many things. It was by your love for one your willingness to lay down your lives and serve. And God may not give you the gifts you desire, 
I think that's an important note. How do you know you're gifted? I've met a few people that think they're gifted. And they're not. <laughs> right? Especially if you heard me, I could lead worship. It would only take one time and you would come up and say, not so gifted. In fact, I led music at a men's retreat on a last minute notice. And I made it through three songs. And I kicked it over to the preacher early. And I had a man walk up and lean on the podium. And his first question was, so how long have you been playing? It was that bad, right? He knew. He knew. He was so gracious. But his words were, how long have you been playing? What did that mean? I know you've not been playing very long, and this is a travesty. Can I take your guitar in the next session? And my words were, yes, please. How do you know you're gifted? One, we read in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, that he says, remember the gift that is in you. Pay attention. That you receive when the elders laid hands upon you. One, God's going to begin to provide opportunities to you to exercise that gift. You're not going to need to make it happen. You're going to have elders and people in the church who are going to affirm the gift in you. And I know sometimes there's people that idolize the platform and they want to be on the platform, but guess what? Not their gifting. Not wrong to want it. But you know what? Wait for the affirmation that God's gifted and he will give it. He'll provide the opportunities. Look for that confirmation. It's not just about your passion, but God may too also give you a passion. My son today is speaking at the church I serve at at Gabriola this morning, and I love it. And he feels like puking right now. And you can all pray for Joshua, because right now, he may be puking, because he's standing up doing what I'm doing right now for the first time at a church. And you know what I told him before I left? Don't worry, Joshua. I feel like puking every time, and I've been doing this for 20 years. I still want to barf. You people make me nervous. It doesn't mean that will change. But here's what must change. That as a body, we come together and we will truly experience the body at work, the church of Acts, when it becomes not about what I get, but what I can give. Not how I'm served, but how I'm able to serve. And do you know what's exciting? And I want to wrap this all back up to where we started. You know what I love? Is today the fact that when Paul started this letter, he reminded the church that I would never have thought about their position. You're sanctified, set apart for purpose, holy, grace-filled. Now, why have you become like you are? You know what they needed? To simply allow their position to start affecting their condition. But you know what's exciting? That if that security in the Lord Here's a church. I don't think they deserve the name church over their doorposts when you read what they were doing. And yet Paul called them the church of Corinth. They were the body of Christ. They weren't living like it. But they were still the body. Why? Because their position was secure in him. They were sanctified. They were set apart. Now they needed to start living like it. Do you know what I love? 
is that in that security, and Paul keeps reminding them, listen, your body's no longer your own. It was bought with a price. Start using it for God's purpose, not your own. Your marriage is not your own. Your body's not your own. Your relationships aren't your own. Your stomach's not your own. Quit using these things for condemnation. Start using them to build up the body. And, and, and when you come all the way back, you realize, he says, listen, idolaters and fornicators, so, so is what many of you were, but you were washed. He's reminding them of what they can be and who they are in Christ, not what they are. And I want you to note something, and I was reminded of this recently, and I was sharing it with Lauren a little while ago, that there's a friend who I was in touch with recently, and he's the kind of friend who I like to hate, and I'll explain why. <laughs> he is genetically, unbelievably gifted, and it makes me angry. His uncle played, uh, his father played in junior hockey, almost made it to the NHL, his uncle played in the CFL as a linebacker playing football. He made it into the top percentile in the world as a mixed ice and rock climber. Mm -hmm. What do you think his kids are? One, the oldest, went to La Voix, which is the French version of The Voice. You've seen that TV show? She's on The Voice and actively uh, doing music and all this. The other two, he has twins. Uh, currently being pursued by the Olympic ski team for slalom and downhill. They were number one in Canada in cross-country running. Just looking at him makes me angry because he'll eat McDonald's every day and he has the chiseled body of a Greek god. Like, I'm serious. And then I look at my children. Sorry, children. <laughs> Don't draw attention to me. And what did I give them? Well, my littlest guy, a mouth too small for all the giant teeth that are filling it, right? I look at my genetics, and what did I pass down? Nothing redeemable, nothing at all. Cancer genes and two small mouths, and my wife reminds me, whenever there's an issue, it usually came from my side of the family. It's guaranteed. <laughs> but listen, they're so gifted, and I'll never forget one of the first times we brought our kids climbing together. And I want you to picture my kids who were tentative, learning to climb for the first time, afraid to fall as they scrambled up a rock face. And then his kids came up. And these are those kids who make you really mad. They're the ones who are three-year-olds this high and come bombing past you tucked on the ski hill. And you're like, what are you, right? Like, that's them, born on skis. And you watch these kids who are running, scrambling, leaping, free. Why were they free? The harness was the same. The rope was the same. The belayer was the same. Here was the difference. His kids were born in a harness and knew that even if they left and made a mistake, missed a hole, what did they know from birth? The rope had them. They could make mistakes. They could jump out and go for it, my kids still learning, still learning, he hesitant, tentative. And you know what I love? When we come to the realization that our position is secure in Christ, and I love that picture. Do you know in Roman adoption, you could kick your own kids out of the inheritance? Isn't that a great thing, kids? 
Watch out, right? Here's what you couldn't do. Kick an adopted child out of your inheritance. Why? Because your biological children, those are yours. Do with them what you may. If you adopted a child, you chose them. And to protect them from simply being brought in as secondhand slaves that would be then disregarded, their security in the inheritance was kept protected. And I love that. Once adopted, always adopted. What are we? Adopted children of the Lord. That's our position. Secure in Him. And I love the fact that once you truly understand that security, it should give us a freedom. We can leap and jump and make mistakes. And yet, what does the Lord have? Enough grace to cover it all. Why? Because He has us. Our position in Him. We are loved. We are his children. We are adopted. And I wonder today as a body how often we spend so much time trying to be perfect. Even in our service, our gifting, or our gifts. I wouldn't dare get up and strum a guitar. Why? I'm not good enough yet. Not about our performance or our perfection, but our willingness to trust him. I love the people who I've met, who've taken chances. Do you know I'm here today because of a man who had nothing in common with you whatsoever and yet chose to teach Sunday school? He was a single bachelor who raised horses, and his house, if I were honest, was kind of like a horse stall. It was pretty rough. <laughs> he had nothing in common. He wasn't cool. He wasn't really funny, he was awkward, and he was weird. And yet, guess what? He made himself available. Anytime you want, come down to the farm. It was his availability that reached the youth, not his personality. That was his gifting. He was available. And I wonder today that as you look and as you begin to pray, as to what's ahead in the season going forward for this church. As you highlight what's at the core value of what's important, you will always get in direct reciprocation with what you need. That's part of God's economy. And God longs that he might use you, and he longs that he might allow you to walk in those gifts. But the gifts are given for the common good and for the edification of the body. I hope this morning, if anything, I can leave you with those words and that reminder that today God longs to use you and the people around you, whether outside the church or inside. And today, the blessings are found not when you seek them, but when you give them. That's why the Lord has me doing what I'm doing. Because I'm the one who needs to hear this. And every time I'm forced to prepare and feel sick and want to bar every Sunday, God says, look at what you're doing. You're hearing. Sometimes I think we have to put ourselves out on the road and take a chance and rely on him. Uncomfortable position sometimes because he's our only end. But put ourselves nonetheless in that place 
where God can use us as the bomb, but we'll never experience to its fullest when we're selfish with the gift that was so selfless. We like to call ourselves the body of Christ, but when we acknowledge that he was broken on our behalf, abused, spat on, and ultimately crucified, it doesn't always feel good to be the body of Christ, but it's not always about feeling. Take time and pray. In the season ahead, how is it that God desires to use you? You may not have the gift you would have chosen. He may have given you the gift of singleness, and you're still praying for a partner. Guess what? He's given you a gift, and while you have it, use it unto his glory. Be available. Maybe he's given you another gift. It could be financial. It could be anything. The prayer today is, God, how do I use what you've given me not to be blessed, but to be the blessing that you desire? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that this morning we can come together and that we can enjoy the opportunity to read your word and be reminded that your word is always both challenging and encouraging. Thank you that today you have secured our position that in Jesus we are forgiven, children of God. And yet today, we long on this earth that that might be reflected in our condition. May people see the life of the loving Lord who laid down his life for one of us. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, when the love of Christ controls us, you die so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but you who died again. May we embody that very thing as a body, both in and outside this church. May people see you, not in our perfection or performance, but in this invitation to be genuine. May they see you in the midst of our weakness. May they see your ability and our inability, your riches amidst our poverty. I thank you that you are a faithful God who uses broken, weak vessels jars of clay. Why? So that the watching world may see that the surpassing greatness is from you and you alone. May we become comfortable with weakness, because there we find your strength. May we embrace these times when we are without, because there we know you are. Thank you for your encouragement in life as a living Lord, that today we need never settle for anything less than what you offered, and that's all that you are. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.